Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we'll be talking about Reductress, the satirical women's media site. Joining me will be Beth Newell and Sarah Papalardo, co-founders of Reductress. In our conversation, they poke fun at some of the tropes of internet writing. They talk about the people who don't get their jokes, and they discuss the challenges of running a digital media company on a shoestring. After the break, Beth Newell and Sarah Papalardo, co-founders of Reductress. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we will be talking with Beth Newell and Sarah Papalardo, the co-founders and editors of Reductress, which is a satirical women's magazine founded in 2013. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hey. Um, so I, I described it as a satirical women's magazine because that's how you describe it on your website. But maybe you can unpack that a little bit for people who haven't seen Reductress before. What is Reductress? It is a satirical women's magazine, but uh, it was kind of born out of um, a lack of spaces for women to make comedy about women's experiences, um, both in real life and online. So it also we also satirize just women's media and advertising and just kind of the way that the media speaks to women. Yeah, we're going after the double standards that women uh, experience in media and, um, yeah, just the everyday experiences women are having. So I, I looked today, some of the headlines today, why I stopped dating men and started following a herd of majestic bison. Uh, Mom eagerly awaiting an infection of your nose piercing for glorious vindication. Uh, so who is, who is generally the butt of jokes in, in reductress stories? I think it's everyone. I mean, we're laughing at ourselves as well as the patriarchy. So the target could be anyone. But at the end of the day, a lot of what we're satirizing is sort of like white feminism, millennials, um, consumerist feminism. Yeah. And just like a lot of tropes that we see online, like of the the first person essays and mommy bloggers and things like that, too. Um, things that would be familiar to anyone who spends a lot of time on the internet. Um, what have been your most successful stories in terms of ones that have really taken off and gotten a lot of clicks or a lot of attention or a lot of accolades? Um, definitely how to be a lady in the streets and a haunted clock tower in the sheets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we're piercing my baby's tongue. Here's why. <laughs> um relationship goals this couple realized they don't have to attend every event together mm-hmm. has feminism gone too far now that it's specifically criti- critiquing me <laughs> so I'd, I'd say there's like um in some cases kind of an absurdist silly bent to the humor in other cases slightly more edge to it is there a consistent political viewpoint i guess to to reductress I mean, it's definitely sort of our political viewpoint, which is pretty liberal and feminist. But tonally, we try to mix it up, like you said. Is Sometimes it's more cutting political satire, and sometimes we're just doing stuff about haunted clock towers. You know, like, we try, we don't want people to feel like they're being lectured all day through comedy. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I think our goal, no matter whether it's, like, a poop joke or something about, like, fascism, we're trying to say something that isn't being said somewhere else and trying to kind of uncover even, like, the the smaller experiences of womanhood that maybe people haven't given words to yet. Um, so you can be like, oh, right, yeah, that that is a thing that we all experience. Where do your contributors come from? Can you tell us a little bit about where your writers come from and how you manage them and how you juggle um, submissions and such? 
Our contributors apply to be contributors on a quarterly basis. So we do have like a group of active contributors of like 30 or 40 at any time. But some people move on to other things and then we get some new ones. But it's it's usually like a consistent number of like maybe 30, 30 or 40. Is there any sort of guideline or template you use to define what a reductor story is or, or to help you sort of generate headlines or stories? Ooh, I feel like if we if we got too templatey, I feel like it would lose all joy. But I think there's definitely certain types of articles, like some that are, are kind of making fun of the first person tone. And um, we have like just so many uh, pieces kind of about things that white men have done. Um, but yeah, it's really fertile ground. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's such like... as interrupting someone. That's a classic <laughs> white man move. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's okay. No, <laughs> I was just going to say, it's like, there's a lot of skills you can bring to honing comedy, but when it comes to coming up with the ideas, it's sort of all over the place. And I think it, you know, we're just always trying to be aware of what we're reading online, what happens as we're walking down the street. And I think that's just sort of how comedy works. Uh, okay. This is a two part question. So, who did you think you were trying to reach? Who did you think the audience was going to be? What kind of person was going to read Reductorist when you launched this? And then is that different than what your demographics actually turned out to be? Yeah, I mean, I think early on the goal was millennial women, like women like us. And um, it's definitely expanded beyond that. We've found ourselves having a lot more male readers than we expected. Um, the age range is still sort of like the 18 to 35 crowd for the most part, but we definitely go beyond that. Um, what kind of responses have you gotten from your male readers? I mean, anywhere from like the expected troll response, or like men aren't like that. But like, there are <laughs> honestly like a lot of really well-meaning guys who are like, "Oh no, really? That's a thing." Men, I interrupted you, and like, really, like, take something away from it <laughs> in, yeah. in kind of a humbling way. That's kind of nice. A funny common response we get is men being like, "Am I allowed to read this?" Yeah. <laughs> we're like, "Yeah, <laughs> you can read it." <laughs> Uh, okay, let's go back to the start of Reductress. So how did this begin? What, Where were you coming from and what made you want to launch something like this? We met doing sketch comedy. We had worked on a couple shows together. Um, we did a political show during the 2012 election. Um, and I, I had been teaching sketch at the Magnet Theater where we met and was doing a free writing workshop for women, trying to get more women into the sketch program because... Aside from me and Sarah, there were not a lot of women at the time. It was a fledgling program. Um, and when we got all these women into the room, I was noticing a lot of themes popping up over and over again. And not only that, but the women in the room were sort of laughing hysterically at a lot of these ideas because it was just so refreshing to us to have a group of people who understood what we were talking about. Because for me and Sarah, who were often in a room as only one or two women in the room, if you pitch the same sort of idea, you would get a lot of blank stares, not because men were trying to be sexist or anything, but they just had a different frame of reference. Yeah, so once we started, it was really um, emboldening to kind of be able to pitch things to a room of people who at least got the baseline concept um, because like, that just allowed us to do things that we just couldn't do anywhere else. And, and how did you um, actually turn this into um, a website? How did you fund it at the start? What were sort of the first steps you took to get moving on it? Yeah, it was a little, um, it was very low budget because we didn't take funding from anywhere else. Um, I was like working full time at the time and just built the site off of like WordPress. Um, we, we built like an original site though, like we weren't using any templates or anything. Um, but um, Beth and I got a group of 
people we write with together and wrote about 50 or 60 articles to hit the ground running. And we took about three or four months to build the site. And um, I think like it all was it's from start to finish. It was like January to April of 2013. And we just launched and it got a pretty good reception after the first few days. So we're like, I think we're going to continue. Do you remember when you realized, okay, this might be something where this is actually getting some traction? Yeah, it was really only a week or two in where we started to get some blogs picking us up and people talking about it. And it was like, oh, like this is getting a good reception, not just like our friends, you know. Um, And that was pretty cool. And we were like, okay, good. And then almost immediately, too, we got a cease and desist from a cosmetics company because (laughs) we had uh, made a joke about them having a line of anti-bullying makeup. (laughs) And... um, that we that was when we were like we need to start a company because we cannot be personally liable for this sort of thing. Yeah, and that's how Reductress Media LLC was truly born. <laughs> Thank you, Boreal. <laughs> okay, and can you give us an idea of of where you're at now? How how big has it gotten? How many employees do you have? Can you tell us about things like revenues or stuff like that? <laughs> I mean, so we're we're still a small company. We're a company of like five people in house, but we have you know hundreds of contributors who uh, contribute from the outside. Um, we're still a small organization. We never took any outside funding or anything like that. So we've definitely grown a lot year over year, but um, we're still very we keep things close knit and are kind of grateful that we don't have any outside hands pressuring us into making stuff we don't want to make. Yeah, it, unfortunately for every step we've grown, the media revenue streams have dried up over the last few years. So <laughs> we're just sort of grateful at this point that, you know, we're staying afloat and um, when so many media companies are falling apart right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, take it from someone who's worked in digital media for a long time, it's not the easiest business uh, to be in. When did Were you daunted at all? I mean, even in 2013, it was, the writing was already had been on the wall for, I guess, for a while about digital media. Was it a daunting industry to enter? Yeah, and there was a huge learning curve. I mean, I think like we we understood like content production, but the actual business part was like, what is this? Um, so it's been a process of learning and then relearning and relearning because it changes every year. Um, do you have advice for anyone who wants to enter the digital media biz? Hmm. Do's and don'ts. I mean, what a great piece of advice we got. Uh, early on was just don't spend money you don't have, which I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. we're, uh, we thankfully just like rarely s- spent very much money on anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I often say like, it's sort of like, it has to snowball from a small seed or whatever metaphor you want to use, but you start small and you grow something slowly and you just can't expect success to happen overnight. Yeah. And I think, you know, the pattern of, chasing the last thing that made someone money is probably a fool's errand too. Like I think we, a lot of companies went from, you know, like chasing like video when video was a thing and then everyone got there and you know, the market was too crowded and now we're moving to like different social platforms and that's great. But like, I think, you know, if one has the time and the vision to actually predict what's coming next, I think that's really like the ideal of where to put your energy. Yeah, we were having all of these meetings a couple of years ago with like bigger companies that had a lot more money to blow than us. And they were all investing in Facebook video. And we and Sarah was like, well, how are you making money off of that? And they were like, well, we don't know yet. But then it just it was like one of those things where 
as Facebook was like eating these companies alive, they were playing right into mm-hmm. it. Yeah. That's the real fire fest of this whole yeah. thing. <laughs> um, how, well, how reliant are you on places like Facebook? I mean, for something, for a piece that's on Reductress to sort of blow up and go viral, as they say, how reliant are you on platforms like Facebook to have that happen? I mean, it's still a main driver, but definitely like a half of what it was three or four years ago. I mean, you could like see the points where they changed their algorithm and like it directly affected our traffic. So, you know, it's still something that we do, but we don't put money into it necessarily. Yeah, it seems like unfortunately right now you have to be on social media as a brand. It's not really like... There's no yeah. other way to get to people. Right, right. But I think like back in the day when like everyone was doing a lot more paid promotions, like we really found at this point we don't find an upside to like throwing a lot of money at Facebook. Yeah, and so you said you 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 try to keep costs down. Have you managed to attain profitability yet? Is that still in the future or is that somewhere are you already able to net out? I mean, we're profitable but you know at at a scale that i don't think many uh even the scrappiest of startups uh <laughs> might be comfortable with but we're we're kind of used to it we come from you know the starving broke comedy world so um, it's all right have you gone out to look for other funding um in you know since you started have you gone out again and said okay now we're a thing now do you want to invest at x valuation and so forth yeah but not as hard as uh, other people have um you know i think like neither of us are that type of like salesman exactly so like yeah it's also i mean when you go after that investment money too you have to have a pretty strong strategy of how you're going to use that money and as all these like we said these media revenue streams are drying up we're sort of like it it becomes harder and harder to make a case for what you're going to do with a huge investment Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so Revenue streams drying up. Where, where, what are your revenue streams? <laughs> the, one, the ones that are drying up and the ones that continue to, to trickle, I guess. Where, where does your money come from? How do you make money? Uh, merchandise, education, live events, um, some branded content. Um, but I think the one thing that's just dried up was like display ads, really, above all. Do you do display ads? Are there ads on Reductress? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're partnered with um, Fusion, which like handles that part of things like via the onion. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's not, you know, it, it used to be a much bigger uh, piece of revenue for us. And now it's just kind of like, it helps. <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of digital media companies are trying to do things like live events. Um, what are some of the secrets of that? How, have you been successful with that? How do you think about doing things like live events or other ancillary revenue stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fun. And like the most fun parts of our brand have just been like, how do we take on thing X and like make it a critique of social uh, of women's media or the, like the female experience or whatever? So we can just... We can go wild with themes on live events and we've done podcasts in the past and kind of just like built out the world of Reductress through those things. So like it's fun. I mean, as long as you have talent that's kind of closely aligned with your brand and your brand is strong, live events can be really fun. Yeah. And that's fun for us because, you know, we come from the comedy community and we now are in an office all day. So any excuse we have to work with performers and actually be hanging out with fun people is cool. Yeah. Um, so live events, merch. What were some of the other um, side hustles <laughs> you guys have? Uh, 
Um, we wrote a book, uh, How to Win at Feminism, uh, published through HarperCollins, and um, we sold the pilot to Comedy Central. Yeah. So. Uh, what was the pilot? What was that? Uh, it was called The Reductress Hour. Uh, it has not been picked up, <laughs> but um, it's it was sort of a, a satirical late night talk show in the style of Colbert Report, hosted uh, by a, uh, a host portrayed by Abby Elliott, sort of. Um, uh, sort of satirizing like millennial women's media, entertainment, television, things like that. Um, do your stories ever get mistaken as real stories? You know, the people you know, people always talk about the Onion story that's completely satirical that's passed around as an actual news story. Does that happen with with reductor stories? Yes, um, right around the election, um, one went super viral um, called "If If Trump Wins, I'm Moving to Alaska." And um, a lot of people were very upset and had like made calls for the writer to be fired um, because Alaska is in America. One guy wrote like a 10,000 word think piece about like what's wrong with this country because of this piece. Um, And yeah, it was pretty surprising. Like that actually that one was actually really surprising to have the reaction it got. But um, yeah, it's usually like people who want to believe it's real because it makes a case for their political agenda about, you know, liberals being dumb or something, you know. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was another one a long time ago um, where piercing my baby's tongue. Here's why that people definitely thought was real. (laughs) Um, But then there was like a whole other level of that where people thought that it was a satire of like anti-vaxxers but it was actually just meant to be dumb (laughs) just like here's a dumb thing (laughs) um but yeah it's still fun to read the twitter comments though whenever that happens okay we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back with more from beth newell and sarah papalardo co-founders of reductress you mentioned you're sort of satirizing a white woman sensibility um why white women or or does race ever enter reductress as a subject of inquiry or discourse yeah i mean we definitely have uh, a number of articles tackling race issues uh the reason we're tackling white women is because you know so much of our work is centered on feminist issues and there's such a clear blind spot of a lot of white women when it concerns feminism to um how race affects those things and you know, when we're talking about feminism, like I said, we're sort of talking about a lot of like consumerism, feminism, pink pussy hat stuff, safety pin feminism, sort of the this women sort of parroting the idea of feminism without necessarily making any effective change in the world. Do you have affection for some of these women's sites or women's magazines that you're parodying is it how would you describe your relationship with the actual material that you're kind of bouncing off of i mean they still do a lot of great work and especially in the past few years they've done some great journalism too but um every once in a while something comes about that is just like what are you doing like why are you writing a whole article about why jagged little pill is bad i don't know (laughs) um there's always there's always something kind of subtle to poke fun at Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the writers, I think, sometimes are too like victims of the system where they're trying to generate clickbait. And that's how, unfortunately, writers get paid these days. And so like we understand that we don't necessarily hate those people, but we're we're making fun of like the tone of media at the end of the day. And what's these like systemic problems that we all are uh, prey to? 
do you ever get feedback from the people whose work you're satirizing? And presumably they're sort of in your readership demographic, some <laughs> yeah. of the people whose work you're satirizing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's been mostly positive. I don't think anything we've ever done is like so scathing that <laughs> they would be upset over it. Yeah, it's pretty rare that we're going after like individuals. Even when we're satirizing clickbait, a lot of times it's more like about a trend that's happening in clickbait and not like one specific article because the nature of satire and comedy, if you're parodying something, people have to get the reference point and it's only articles that go super viral that you're going to be parodying like a very specific article. Otherwise, people are not going to get the joke. Um, and in that case, those people have been getting a lot of flack from all over the internet. We're not the right. only ones. Like we're not worried about offending I love my curvy wife guy or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Could there have been a, a pre-internet version of Reductress? Could you have been doing similar stuff? Or is it unique to the clickbait internet content age? I, oh, I think you for sure could. And I think people were probably doing it uh, even on like 1970s SNL. Like, uh, you know, there was plenty, p- plenty of people making fun of women's media. Yeah. And there were definitely like before Reductress ever came around, the only... Uh, women's magazine reference points we had were like parodies of magazine covers. And I think that's kind of like, was like originally our inspiration, but we didn't see a lot of people going past parodying magazine covers. And yeah, I think it would have been fun to see like a full on magazine that would be just like fully like making fun of nineties teen magazines or something like that. Who do you view as your competition? What your, your readers, like where else are they spending their time? Who, who is taking their eyes away from you? Yeah, it's it's weird to think about like other places as competition because like what I don't know. Uh, it's just like social media and like meme accounts, I guess. Yeah, like, right. Twitter, <laughs> just Twitter jokes. Right. <laughs> People screenshotting jokes on Twitter and putting them on Instagram—that's our competition, I guess. <laughs> um, what kinds of things are you gearing up to cover now? Are you getting ready for the twenty twenty election? What kinds of things are going to be in your wheelhouse in the near future (laughs) i mean probably like what's brewing in the office is just probably like a lot of what (laughs) what you're seeing on twitter too which is like why are these female candidates not being covered in the media and when they are like why aren't we (laughs) giving them the credit that's due um yeah i mean that's yeah, it's 2020 is definitely going to be a focus. I think we um, are hesitant to like make any predictions these days on what <laughs> is specifically going to be covered. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> we'll be on it though. <laughs> Rest uh, assured. Okay, let, so let me ask you uh, a few questions about um, how you see yourself as managers. Um, first of all, how do you divide the workload? Um, Sarah handles m- more of the financials than I do, although. I do get those invoices done. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I mean, we kind of have our hands on everything for the most part. It's just, it's still very scrappy. Yeah, I mean, to put a long story short, like we do everything. I mean, we don't have like an in-house like accountant or like a COO or um, a CMO or a CFO. Like we are all of those things. So yeah, we don't have individual offices <laughs> or, uh, or windows. <laughs> these are things you could be telling those investors things you would be spending money on. Um, do you think you naturally gravitate towards different roles in running the business? Do you sort of complement each other in how you run the business? I mean, I, I used to be a producer. So like 
you know, naturally I, I, I like organizing things and executing projects. So I tend to just structure those and make sure I get it done. Yeah. I, I used to be, like I said, a sketch writing teacher. So I do think I like to sort of talk people through their ideas and, you know, find the right angle for a story and stuff like that. How much time are you able to spend on the, the editorial side of this and how much time do you have to spend on more of the business keeping the lights on side of things? I mean, I, I would say like editorial takes up maybe like 30 to 40 percent of time, um, which actually isn't th- isn't very much. But um, it's because we we do have like a lot of like between like podcasts and working on pitches and things like that. That ends up taking a lot more of our time, even like creatively. Um than editorial straight editorial have you developed management style have you have you sort of like progressed in how you manage people since you started doing this yeah i mean i think we've evolved a little bit in terms of communication styles um just uh trial and error you know we didn't i don't think we got into this knowing that we would be managing so many people um and so yeah, I I think when you're managing people, you kind of learn over time that sometimes you just have to kind of like eat shit on certain things. I don't. Can I say that on this podcast? <laughs> we'll uh, find out. <laughs> yeah, uh, like you just there's a lot of compromises you have to make in terms of like what you want to say or do and what you can do because you have to manage people's expectations. You can't always fill them in on all the pressures that you're under because that would just make everyone feel crazy. But you still have to work under those pressures and constraints and find a way to get it done. So, yeah, we've definitely learned like to juggle all that and to um, internalize and diffuse some of those stresses. Mm, yeah, and I, I think like a lot of startups you know we went from just being like a bunch of friends just hanging out to like actually like slowly evolving into some structure and that just means like putting boundaries on ourselves and like everyone just to kind of like keep things like happy and positive and and make sure everyone's still having fun um i've read about um workshops or other ideas about bringing sort of the, the improv mindset into the workplace um, and and somehow incorporating some of the principles of improv into meetings or management is that do you I know you did sketch comedy do you do that does that work do you are you an advocate of that yeah we both come from improv and I think that is sort of in the spirit of the site which is that we you know we get all these pitches from contributors who are not in the office and we go through them together and sort of figure out what's hitting and working and then We'll tweak those a lot. So it is kind of like a yes and style of like, okay, maybe this person is like latching onto something that's trending and noteworthy, but maybe something is a little bit off about the joke or the sub the target of their joke. And we'll try to build on that together and not just like say no to that idea because it's not 100% there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know there was like kind of like a counterpoint. <laughs> There's like a few articles being like, well, the value of no still exists. And <laughs> I mean, I think like yes and is just like a good way to approach most things because you just don't want to like go into a meeting prepared to shut someone down. Like in any case, like sometimes you have to because of resource restraints or, or constraints or um you know, something that like literally cannot happen. Um, but, you know, like going in with the mindset of yes and, and, you know, but not being afraid to say no, like again, just to avoid a fire festival situation, like everyone like needs to say no to certain things at some point. 
um, <laughs> before you're trapped on an island with cheese we, sandwiches. We are planning our fire fest. Obviously. <laughs> See you there. Just be legends and yes. do it. Um, all right. I'm going to move to our lightning round. Rapid fire questions and answers. Are you ready? Mm. Yes. Are there any books or movies or pieces of music that have somehow informed the way you think about managing people or running an organization that you draw from? Mm. Oh, this is so cliche, but like the tipping point. I think just um, knowing that like certain uh, social circles and working circles kind of get weaker um, when it's over 150 people. I think that's like very, very true. And in terms of like how we've fostered like culture of contributors and things like that that like there is like a too big or you do need to like change the way you approach it when things get bigger than a certain number um meetings are you pro or con how do you handle meetings at reductress we have a weekly pitch meeting we don't do a lot of meetings but i do i find that they're actually pretty necessary and productive uh, on occasion i was really i'm one of those people who's really resistant to phone calls as well because you know some people may have a phone call when it could have been an email but i've found over time i see the value in phone calls for certain topics that really need to be talked out yeah i think we kind of mastered the like this needs to like we know when something needs to be an email and i that's my favorite part of the office um what mistakes have you made that you've learned the most from I think just when you're putting stuff out there on the internet, not to take things too personally or get like too swept up in it. I think it feel like things can feel really um, important in the moment, and then the news cycle changes over the next day, and you know, it's I don't know. It's I think when you're, especially when you're sort of on the side of something progressive, it's really easy to get very like wrapped up in the news cycle and feel like everything is so dire all the time, and especially since the election, I feel like. I've personally learned that the amount of sway I have in the world is very small and I shouldn't be losing sleep at night over that. <laughs> yeah, that's second that. There's nothing we can do. We just <laughs> submit to our fate equally. Um, okay, last question. If I fired you both from Reductress tomorrow and said you can never do anything like this again, you can never do sketch comedy again, you can never run digital media again, you have nothing at all like what you've been doing. You have to do something completely different with your lives. What would you do instead? Like nothing comedy related at all, or yes, I've banned <laughs> I've banned comedy from your life. I probably do like I I'm into like just media literacy, and I want I want kids and adults to be more media literate. So I'd probably do something in that realm. I think I just go back to painting. Mm-hmm. I, that sounds better. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll join you. You'd be amazed how many people I ask this question to, like CEOs of companies of all sizes, say, "I wish I could just go paint." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I that's what I went to art school, and I'd miss th- those silent days, just sitting there with like no one saying a word. It was beautiful. <laughs> all right, um, Beth Newell and Sarah Papalardo, co-founders and editors of Reductress, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Okay, that's our show. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.